we are working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we finished the first half last week with our 18th message in Ephesians. We have 21 or 22 messages going forward in in chapters 4 through 6. And before we get into the six verses that Nick read this morning, um, which frankly we're never going to be able to cover in 40 minutes uh, really well, there's so much there. Um, Nevertheless, I want to talk about the dichotomy or sort of the differences between chapters 1 and 3 and chapters 4 and 6. Many of you already know this, but it's helpful for those of you who are new to the Bible and and sort of approaching this for the first time to kind of understand what's going on in this document that Paul wrote from prison in Rome, probably around the year 60 or 61 uh, AD, to the church in Ephesus and the the communities uh, surrounding um, Ephesus, what it is that he's trying to do here. So uh, one way to look at it is chapters 1 through 3 is the gospel story, and then chapters 4 through 6 is our story in light of the gospel, how that, how that gospel story applies to us. It's the application of the gospel story to our story. But one of the things that we need to remember about this is that our story lives in acquiescence to God's story. It's not about us trying to strain God's story through our story and rooting out the things that we don't agree with, but rather it's us coming to God in submission to his gospel story and allowing him to root out the things that aren't uh, part of his plan and purpose. Um, another way of looking at it is verses, chapters 1 through 3 is uh, this is who God is and what he's done, and now we walk in that. Uh, the idea of, of walking um, is, is we live out that which we now believe. Uh, live in this manner that reflects the fullness of God. That's what we're going to be looking at these, these next three chapters. We talked last week at length about what the fullness of God is, and now we live in that fullness. Um, it, it's about the fact that we've been saved, we've been redeemed from our, our nature of sin, and we're now reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, his son. And it's the idea, chapters 1 through 3, uh, verses chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 4 through 6 is Paul's way of saying, this gospel, this salvation in your life, it means something. It's going to transform you if it's real in your life. And I use that word saved Uh, Because it's actually a biblical word. The Bible uses the word. It's not a churchy word. It's it's a biblical word. And being saved means something. It means transformation. And then probably the most common way of looking at chapters 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6, is that chapters 1 through 3 is doctrine, and chapters 4 through 6 is praxis. It's this word that means the practical outworking of that which you believe or the application of it to your life. And those of you who have been around for seven years at least, you know that Praxis was the first name of our church before we merged with East Valley Bible Church and became Redemption Church uh, more than seven years ago. So... um, The idea is that doctrine leads to transformation and action, okay? So here's how one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, says it. He says, a Christian cannot afford to be spiritually constipated. How's that for an image, okay? But that's what he says. He says, the problem with so many Christians is that we're spiritually 
uh, constipated. We've got all this doctrine coming in, but we don't have any action moving out. Redemption Church is, is gospel-centered but outward-focused. This, this transformation is supposed to move us outward. We gather and then we are uh, sent out. If we don't get sent out, if there isn't application and transformation that's visible in action, it would be like taking golf lessons and hitting buckets and buckets of balls but never playing a round of golf. Um, you think about the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is often used as an, as an illustration of this. There's a lot of water going into the Dead Sea, but nothing going out. And that's why the Dead Sea is dead, right? Our faith is dead if it doesn't mean anything to us. Here's one of my greatest um, uh, understandings of this. I, I will tell you, I love Bible study. Those of you that know me, you know I love Bible study. And I like teaching the Bible. But too often in the church, the suggested solution to a problem or an issue or a challenge is what? Well, let's have another Bible study and see what the Bible says about this. Mm, no. No. That's like praying for four years about whether or not to have a children's ministry. I don't think you need to pray for four years about that. You don't always need another Bible study. What, what we need to do is we need to actually step out in faith. We're gospel-centered and outward-focused. Now, these six verses set the tone for the rest of the letter, and that's why they're very important. So let's get to it. Look at verse 1. It should be on the screen. I love this rhetorically. Uh, Paul says that he's a prisoner uh, of or for Jesus. And, and this is what you might call a double entendre. It plays out on two levels. He's, he's obviously a prisoner in Rome, so literally he's a prisoner, but he's also a prisoner of Christ because he's been captured by Jesus. Think back to his Acts chapter 9 Damascus Road experience, and you recognize that, that Jesus has captured him, and he's a prisoner in that way, in a very, very good way. And he says that, I'm telling you, as a prisoner of Jesus that you are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner that betrays or demonstrates the fact that you are a gospel-centered person now. That word walk is an ancient Greek colloquialism for live in a particular way, manifest your life this way. And the interesting thing about that verb walk is that it, it, it at least implies, and probably I would even argue commands, perpetual motion. Perpetual motion. Think about the implications of that. There is no such thing or should be no such thing as a sedentary Christian, a Christian who's just sitting around acquiring more knowledge and never doing anything about it. But also, it can sound a little duty-bound and maybe a little transactional, right? We always say this is all about God and God's working in us, but now he's saying, look, you got to go do something. It sounds a little duty-bound. Are we obligated? This is really important to understand this dynamic here. And much of this rest, rest of this letter, Paul continues to make this clear, but here's what it looks like. Because Jesus has done something uh, impossible for any of us to do and certainly much harder than anything we'd ever do, he went to the cross, he submitted to the cross on our behalf. And he didn't deserve that at all. But he went, and because of that, we should, in joyous gratitude, live this way out 
of a glad heart and not under compulsion. We should live it out through a glad heart. In other words, we should forgive because we've been forgiven. And we should forgive joyously. We should submit because Jesus submitted to the cross for us. We should love because Jesus loved us radically. We should be, we should be kind and compassionate because in Christ, God has been kind and compassionate to us. And because Jesus is light, we should walk in the light and not in darkness. And we should die to ourselves because Christ died for the church. He died for us. Now, that's just a short list of all the things you all can knock out by noon tomorrow, okay? So you've got your list. Go out and get it done. And let's not miss this. This is an issue also of faith. We cannot simply work harder and will our way to these things happening. Paul has always been clear about this. This is, this is about the empowerment that we have by the Holy Spirit because of the gift of faith that we have been given us. This is Uh, Going back now to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that we have been saved and, and, and through faith, and this is not of ourselves. This is nothing that you and I have done because we cannot in any way, shape, or form have anything to boast about in our faith because it's all about God. By grace we've been saved through faith, not anything that we have done. And I was reading a book this last week, and the author says it this way, and it was really helpful. Faith in God is so easily accessible, yet at the same time, it's so easy to get wrong. And this is where we feel that tension. You know, every one of us practices faith. We're all creatures of faith. I hope you understand that. Every one of us. I was kind of observing this morning as you were coming in as much as I could, I did not see one single person check out their chair mechanically or structurally before they sat down. You had faith that you were going to be okay sitting down in that chair. Some of you in the last couple of weeks, myself yesterday included, some of you went and got your hair cut. Certainly that is an act of faith, amen? Right? Okay. I, I, my... My bar, I I love this place. It's at 16th Street and Bethany. It's really close to our house, right around the corner from Phoenix City Grill. And and there's like six guys in there all the time. You go in there, you put your name on the board, and then one of the guys is going to cut your hair. And there's always that awkward moment when you first sit down in the chair, and he spins you around to the mirror, and he says, all right, what do you want to do? And, and, and he's nervous, and you're kind of nervous. And finally, I think I figured out how to approach it. Yesterday, I just said to the guy, there's nothing you can do to this hair that's going to be a mistake. So just do whatever you think. Now, don't dye it. That would be a mistake. But really, whatever you do to it, the worst thing that's going to happen is I'm just going to shave my head and start over, and in three weeks, nobody's going to know the difference. And, and it eliminated all that awkwardness. He laughed, and then he did whatever he wanted to do. But at any rate, it's still, especially when he gets out that blade and he starts shaving my neck, that's an act of faith, okay? All right? So there's an act of faith. We put our money in the bank and place our faith in the idea that, that somebody's going to be looking after it. That's an act of faith as well. But those are faiths that either we don't think about or we conjure ourselves. We're, we're willing that up in ourselves. Faith in God is not something that we conjure. It is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, here you go. Here's the tension. It doesn't mean that we don't work hard, prepare, plan, and try. We still have to do those things. It just means 
that we know we are operating on and guided by the true power of God. How many of you are using Blue Apron? The service. Anybody know about Blue Apron? I, this is Arcadia. I can't believe not very many hands have gone up on that Blue Apron thing. All right. So Blue Apron ships you these meals, and all you got to do is put them together and serve them. Okay. Right. So it's again, it's it's trying to create a frictionless uh, existence as a human being. And now our meals are are being prepared for us, all the ingredients. But here's their tagline. We do everything for you. Well, not exactly. You still have to open the box. You still have to store the stuff. You still have to prepare the ingredients. You have to put them together. You have to pull out your, your flatware and your china and, or, 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 or your... your, your, your uh, your utensils, you still have to light the candles, you still have, they don't do everything for you. You understand that? So even they don't have this quite right, okay? So here you go. I've been on this Westminster Confession of Faith kick lately, and this last time, at least until next week, that I'll read from that for you. But put your pens down if you're a note taker. Here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about faith in chapter 14. I think this is really good and helpful. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily produced by the ministry of the Word, ordinarily produced by what we're doing right here, right now, in this room, by which also, by the administration of the sacraments and prayer, which we do after the sermon, Faith is therefore increased and, and, and strengthened. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. For the authority of God himself speaks therein, and the Christian acts differently upon that which each particular passage contains. There is transformation, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. That's beautiful. And I think that's something that we could read over and over and just be encouraged by. So that's verse 1. Look at verse 2. I want to zero in on these three words in verse 2. So humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul says that these are to be attributes that are seen in a gospel-centered person. Humility. Here's My favorite definition of humility is this. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's the idea that Paul has in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing, do not one thing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here you go, think about this. Ambition is not a bad thing. A lot of people think that humility and ambition are at odds with each other. No, they're not. Selfish ambition is at at odds with humility. The problem with ambition is when we get involved for our own reasons. So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain, that word there just simply means empty. Anytime we're uh, conceited or arrogant or filled with pride, it's just an empty experience, okay? So do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, in humbleness, consider others better than yourself. That's the way we're supposed to operate. And then verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, this is really hard for some of us. When, When we have interests and we're with somebody or in a community who also has interests, 
We can look to our own interests, but we always must be mindful of the interests of others and subject our interests to their interests for the greater good. That's really hard to do, but that's what, what humility is about. Literally, the word means this. It's an inside-out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord rather than to others. You know, it's pretty easy to compare ourselves to others because we can always find something in someone else that we're better than them, right? Always. And that produces pride in our life. But if you're comparing yourself to God and you found things that you're better than God at, you've got a problem. Let me just tell you that. You have no understanding of humility because he's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous, he's just, he's true, he's love like we've never understood love before. Uh, this is the definition, this book I read this last week. By the way, terrific book. I highly recommend it. Written by Hannah Anderson. It's called Humble Roots. And I got to tell you, it was recommended to me by a couple of other people. And I'm about a chapter and a half in, and I'm thinking, I'm not so sure. But then it just clicked. I began to understand what she was trying to do in the book, what her illustrations were like. And this thing started to just, it stood me up and confronted me in a way I've rarely been confronted. And this is exactly how she defines humility or humbleness, is, is comparing ourselves always to God, because that keeps us in the right perspective. She also, by the way, has a great definition of pride. Pride is overestimating me and underestimating God. That's a really good, pithy description of pride. But here's the thing about humility. Humility doesn't mean that we don't do what we're good at. Again, humility is not anti-ambition. We are called to thrive, not simply survive. But humility, like I said, keeps things in proper perspective. Humility is a realistic understanding of everything else other than us, and especially God. It's understanding that I'm a part of something bigger than me. Everyone and everything else is not part of me, but rather they're part of that something bigger that I'm a part of with. And then there's this word gentleness, very simply, this word means strength or power under control. Uh, here's another pithy little description of, of the Greek word gentleness that, that I read in another essay. It's compassionate restraint. Compassionate restraint. It's the wisdom and joy of letting go of our perceived control. We all think we're controlling everything. Let go of that perception and... and and, and, and allow God to truly lead in everything. And then this word patience, which is used in several other places in the Bible. Very important word. Patience is the God-empowered ability to remain under heat or pressure for a long time without cracking or breaking. The God-empowered ability to remain under heat or pressure for a long time without cracking or breaking. Uh, this word is used in 1 Peter to describe the patience that God has for us. Same word. God is patient with us. Now, let me tell you a little bit about patience for me. Um, I used to be, 32 years ago, really, really, really impatient. And then God saved me at North Phoenix Baptist Church, and I got married to Jackie. And, and about five years later, I was really, really impatient and God was working on me. I was still a jerk, but there was a, the degree of jerkiness had been going down a little bit, okay? And then about 10 years ago, I would say I became really impatient. 
Today, Jackie, my wife, would describe me as simply impatient. And I think with just a little bit more of the Holy Spirit and the gospel testing in my life and a little bit more time, I'm going to graduate and get my I'm a patient person t-shirt. I can't wait to get that t-shirt. It takes some time, amen? You, you hear this, uh, don't ever pray for patience because, that, you know, you're going you're gonna to be in these situations whether you pray for patience or not. You might as well pray that the Spirit, the Spirit fills you with that ability to remain under heat and pressure without cracking or breaking. And these things, humility, gentleness, and patience, they come from, the, they're not spiritual gifts. You need to understand that. That's a whole different category. They're not spiritual gifts. They're fruit of the Spirit, but they're not spiritual gifts. These things come primarily from the filling of the Holy Spirit plus gospel process, testing of our faith over time. So hang in there. It's, um, I think Paul captures this pretty well in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Let me read it to you. This is one of the places where it's sort of related to. Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also ab- uh, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope for the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Okay, Paul's gone off the rails here, right? We're rejoicing in our sufferings, but he says there's a purpose in this. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. That word endurance right there is the same word in Ephesians translated patience. Same word. It produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Patience produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Really good stuff. And then you see verse 3. We are to be eager to maintain unity. In other words, keep at it. Be persistent. Uh, When you come to community, when you come to, to the church, when you come to your faith community, come with the idea of adding value to unity over and above adding value to your own opinion and status. In other words, it's just the opposite of Twitter, okay? It's the opposite of Twitter. And he says this unity is of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's kind of the New Testament idea of shalom, shalom, literally harmony. Now, before you get all wrapped up in this idea of harmony, understand that true shalom, true harmony, includes tension and friction. It's not a tensionless, frictionless life. It includes that. The idea of shalom is that when you approach your community, when you approach your family, when you approach approach the world, you are living as a benefit or a blessing to all. I love the way one of our um, um, parishioners says this. this. It's, It's Aaron Klusman. He says, look, in the marketplace... You don't necessarily have to talk about being a blessing to others because that might turn people off. Here's how you talk about it. You are going to add value. Add value in whatever circumstance, in whatever situation you are. By the power of the Holy Spirit, add value. And here you go. If you're somebody who adds value everywhere you go and in every situation that you're in, you will always be in demand. Have you ever thought about that? If you're just there to take, you're not going to be in demand. This idea of shalom is that things work the way they're supposed to, including when there are challenges, trials, suffering, and even, uh uh-oh, conflict. Conflict. 
I, I often describe my relationship with Jackie this way. And by the way, Jackie and I are married 30, almost 31 years. We have our tussles and our pushes and pulls and all of that stuff. We're married. It's just like pretty much anybody else. But I'll tell you something. Um, what we have together, the way I describe it is one plus one equals three. We're just better together. And that's my prayer for every marriage. But that's the way it should be in every community. It's, you're just better together. But it is also the mature disposition that conflict is going to occur in whatever context you're in, and it needs to be handled well. I, let me just take a little time to run down this. There are four myths to conflict, and all of us fall into this trap. I do myself as well from time to time. But I found this very helpful. Here's myth number one. Conflict is bad. Conflict isn't bad. That's like saying money is the root of all evil. Conflict isn't bad. Who's bad? We are when we approach conflict. We're the problems. We don't like conflict because of the way we behave in conflict and the way other people behave in the conflict. But conflict isn't bad. Conflict is good. It forces examination of problems and, and the possibility of solutions. Here's the second myth. Conflict is best avoided. No. It's not best avoided because conflict can be an opportunity to fix something and do something better. Uh, Daniel Gilbert, who is a Harvard psychologist and has written a couple of books, really helpful books, he says it this way, given a lack of information, people will always connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. And when you avoid conflict, you're also avoiding getting the information you need to be able to fix the conflict. And when we don't have the information, what do we start to do? We start to build these narratives about the other person that we're in the conflict with because we don't have any information. And sooner or later, the conflict becomes bigger than it really is, and that other person becomes more evil than they really are. When we don't have all the information, we think the worst. We connect the dots in the worst way possible. Here's myth number three. People in conflict have a bad relationship. Maybe they do. Sometimes they do. But the fact is, research shows that the healthiest relationships are never the ones where there is no conflict and sticky topics are avoided. I, I do a lot of premarital and marriage stuff because we're a young congregation. It's rare, but every now and then I'll sit down with a couple that wants to do premarital counseling and I'll say, tell me a little bit about your conflict and arguments. And occasionally, rare, Oh, we never have arguments. We never have conflict. And I just look at them and say, then you're not ready to get married. You're just not ready yet. You, you, you have differences, and you need to figure those out right away. And then they always say, well, that's the point of premarital counseling. Get to it, pal, all right? Um, and then number four, conflict always damages a relationship. I, yeah, I suppose it can, depending on how we've handled it but it can also deepen and strengthen a relationship when it's handled well. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Jesus treats conflict as something that's not to be avoided and that's something that's a reality, and in fact, there's a healthy way to approach it. So this idea of conflict resolution is even in the Gospels, and Jesus taught about it. Here's the key to peace. Peace in the biblical sense, harmony, shalom. Peace in the biblical sense is not the absence of turmoil, but it is the presence of God. And besides, friction helps us grow and learn. There's a 
there's a video uh, I, I recommend. Steve Selzer, who's a vice president for Airbnb, it's about a 24-minute video. It's like a TED Talk, but it's not a TED Talk. It's titled Designing for Friction. And what he's, he's come to the conclusion um, that all these tech companies are trying to build a frictionless existence for all of this, and that's not a good thing for the human condition. That, in fact, without friction, without tension, we will never grow, we will never learn, we will never discover. And I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, you think about a car, what car engine operates properly without some tension? And, and, and when you build a bridge, you realize there's tension in that bridge for it to work properly. Okay? And then you look at verses 4 through 6. I'm just going to read those because it's, it's one pretty simple sentence there. Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Uh, if you were to guess what is the most important theme in those three verses, what would it be? One. Mentioned seven times. Mentioned seven times. We need to look at that. By the way, you see the Trinity in there? Okay, there's no place in the Bible where you can go, there's the Trinity verse, this is, God says, this is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but you can see it there, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, by the way, the reason there's only one body, only one church, is because there's only one Spirit who is in all. That'll create some tension as you begin to think about denominations and things like that. Uh, one baptism, does that mean the mode, how we do it, or does that mean uh, immersion versus sprinkling, or, or believer's baptism versus uh, infant baptism, what, is, what does that mean? That's not what he's talking about here. The idea of this baptism here is that all have died with Christ and have been made new in him. That's the idea of baptism there. In other words, it's not same-mindedness, but like-mindedness. It's not same-mindedness, but like-mindedness. Consider this. Jesus gave us diversity in the body so that there could be unity. Think about that. Without diversity, we have no need for unity, and unity doesn't mean anything without diversity. We get so upset about the diversity, but it's actually necessary to having unity. And then the last thing before I close uh, with my, my treatise about one uh, is this idea of hope. I got to define what Paul means by hope here. It's different than what, what we mean when we say that we hope for something. Um, the greatest human hope that I've ever had that was dashed goes all the way back to 1969. Um, the Phoenix Suns, anybody ever heard of the Phoenix Suns? They're, I think, a basketball team here. Um, their expansion season was 1968. They and the Milwaukee Bucks, their first season in the league, 1968. The Bucks in the Eastern Conference, the Suns in the Western Conference, they went from, I don't know, 10 to 12, or 12 to 14 teams that year, still a small league. And they were both horrible. The Suns and the, and the Bucks were both absolutely horrible that year. And so it was one of those two were going to get the first draft out of the college. Now, I want you to understand there was some different things going on in 1969, believe it or not. The draft was coming in 1969, and it was the Suns or the Bucks. First of all, there was no such thing as a hardship draft. You had to go to college for four years before you could be drafted in the NBA. That was the rule then. Uh, the, the, the second thing was they didn't have a draft lottery. Instead, they, the, the very technical, very high uh, automation. They flipped a coin between the two teams with the worst records. 
So there was this big coin flip between the Suns and the Bucks to see who would draft number one that year, 1969. And the number one draft pick, I would argue, is the single greatest number one draft pick in the history of the NBA. It's not even close. It was a guy who played four years at UCLA, dominated college basketball like never before, uh, won four, I think, four national championships there, a guy named Lou Alcindor. Anybody remember? Lou Alcindor? Some of, some of you are like, who in the heck is Lou Alcindor? Okay, you might know him by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Three years into the NBA, he changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, demanded to be traded to the Los Angeles Lakers, and of course won five championships at the Lakers. But I remember that coin flip. Again, high technology, high drama. I was uh, 10 years old. My hopes and dreams for the sums were riding on getting the number one pick, Lou Alcindor. He was just going to dominate. Okay? And I had a transistor radio. Anybody remember those? And I'm listening to this, and they had hooked up this conference call. This was big stuff for 1969. A conference call between the Suns office, the NBA office in New York, and the Milwaukee office. And Jerry Colangelo, the, the, the managing partner of the Suns, was going um, to call the coin flip. And I remember listening to this on the transistor radio. He called the coin. It was wrong. And on the other end of the phone, I could hear the people in Milwaukee explode in joy and celebration. And Lou Alcindor got drafted by Milwaukee. And three years later, they won their first and only NBA title. And then he demanded to be traded to a big market team. And the Lakers traded five guys for him, and the Lakers won the trade. Amen? Biggest, biggest hope, disappointment. Just that picture right there just still rips my gut out every time I look at it. Okay? By the way, that's known as the curse of the coin flip. It's why the Suns will never win an NBA championship. It's worse than the curse of the Bambino and the curse of the Billy Goat. It's worse than those curses. Okay? Um, Another, another hope, another way of defining it is this way. Some of you have heard me tell this story. In 1999, um, the, the Dallas Stars and the Buffalo Sabres were playing for the Stanley Cup. And, and Mike Madonna, one of my all-time favorite hockey players, was playing for the Dallas Stars. He'd never won a Stanley Cup, so I was really behind the Dallas Stars that year. And they got to the point where the series was three games to two. It was a best of seven. So this was an elimination game. This, Dallas could win the championship in game six. They were up three games to two. Game six was on a Saturday night. That Saturday night, I was preaching at a church in Kingman, Arizona, and then Sunday morning back in that same church in Kingman, Arizona. So I wasn't able to watch the game. So I asked Jackie, again, high technology, to videotape the game for me. Okay? Anybody remember videotapes? Okay. So she videotaped the game for me, and my job was to avoid ESPN and newspapers and media. Newspapers are the way people from my generation used to get their news. Uh, avoid all of that stuff in Kingman, which wasn't that hard to do. The drive all the way home, and then get home. I'd get home around 3 o'clock. I'd put in the video, and I'd watch the game as if it was unfolding in real time, Okay. And I got all the way home, and I'm pulling into my driveway, and my neighbor, Bill, from down the street, who's also a big hockey fan, comes running down the street yelling, Frank, did you see it? Did you see it? Brett Hull's goal in overtime, and they won the Stanley Cup. And I'm like, you jerk. <laughs> so I, I walked into the house, and what did I do? I put the video in, and I watched it. But here you go. I watched it with a hope that I knew was already true. 
That's the hope that, Jesus, that Paul is talking about here. That's the guaranteed hope that you and I have, that Jesus is coming again. Here, here you go. We are not to have a coin flip hope. We are to have a videotape hope. That'll be a great t-shirt, all right? We should do that. Redemption Arcadia. That's the hope he's talking about. It's genuine. It's real. He's already seen the video. So this idea of one, let me, let me close by asking a question and talking just a little bit about this. How do we define ourselves? Or how do we identify ourselves? Either way works. This is an important question. Uh, and I study this a lot in my communication work at the college. It's also a central biblical theme and issue. So both disciplines, theology and communication, I see this big. And here's what I'm talking about. Listen closely to this. Most other cultures outside of America, and certainly the ancient Hebrew and Greek cultures, this was true, most persons in these other cultures identify self with their people, their family, their family name, their parents, and their community, and with the geography of where they're from. In other words, people give definition to and their value is shaped by their corporate, relational, familial, community, and geographical connection. That's how they find identity. People and place form their personhood. Who they are revolves around their community. Their community does not revolve around them. It's an important distinction. This is not the way it is in our culture, right? How we define ourselves in our culture is shaped through our vocation, our career, what we do, our hobbies, and our preferences, what we like. That's why we like things on social media. And it's decidedly individualistic. We are consumers with a capital C. You talk about something called, some of you maybe heard this, uncertainty reduction theory. It's the idea that when two people get into a relationship, early in the relationship, there's this, you're trying to reduce the uncertainty that surrounds this new person that you're in a relationship with. And what do we drive for in America when we want to reduce uncertainty? We want to know what a person does and what they like. What are their preferences and what do they do? That's where we go for, we might, out of... Um, courtesy say where are you from and do you have parents I don't know but mostly we're interested in what they do and and what they like in our culture my community revolves around me not me around my community can you see how this is ultimately unhealthy you see you're like mm, yeah see cognitively we agree with that but the problem is we just can't help ourselves the individual reigns supreme in our culture it's all about me and that's a problem because all biblical teaching teaching pushes against this idea of rugged western individualism and the cross pushes against this as well if jesus was a rugged american consumerist individual he would have never gone to the cross because his preference was not to go. And we know that because of his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way to do this, can we look at that now? But your will be done. This view helps us to see an important gospel principle. Paul says that you and I are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
How do we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep if we're not in community and not in relationship? If we're just individuals, we can't do that. Paul says that is, that is one of the primary attributes of what it means to be a Christian and a part of the body. It, it, it means one. We are one. It means that one does well in the body it helps the community, and all need to celebrate that. But it also means that when one sins, it hurts the community, and all of us need to feel that burden as well. You and I, as part of the body, we don't have an out of saying, it wasn't me. If we're really a part of the church, we don't get that out. Legally, yes, you can distance yourselves. But ethically, in Christ, we are called to remain, to abide to contribute, and to be steadfast. The weight of our gathered goodness elevates us, and the weight of our gathered iniquity hurts us. You and I rise and fall together as a community. Think of the prophets in the Old Testament. As an individual, Jeremiah was a faithful, righteous, just person, right? Yet he suffered greatly under the sin of his people. He doesn't like it. He didn't like it. No one does. No one likes that. But he also knew that was part of his burden. Part of his burden was the burden of his people, and he leaned into that. We're just not good at that today, but it is the way of the cross. Jesus, holy and righteous, suffered willingly, and he did so for us so that we could be one. We are invited into both Jesus' righteousness and the cross. When our brothers and sisters in Christ do well, we should celebrate, even though we know this is hard. One author says that the reason Paul says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, reason rejoice comes first is because that's harder to do. It's easy for us to weep with those who weep, right? It's easy to feel sorry for somebody, but to rejoice when some, something good happens to somebody else, that's really hard, isn't it? Years ago, I had a very good friend running a little shop, doing okay, but just kind of, you know, paying his bills and everything. Gets a call, found out he had an aunt in Oklahoma. He didn't really know that well, would send her a card for Christmas every year. That was about it. His aunt from Oklahoma had invested in oil at just the right time. And he was left $8 million dollars. See, there's no rejoicing in this room to hear that story. And when I heard about it, I was like, hey, well, good for him. <laughs> should rejoice. should rejoice. But it also means that we are to weep with those who weep. When our brothers and sisters sin, it is our burden to bear as well through rebuke, correction, and forgiveness. That is the one and only way of the cross, and it is the way of one. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and its truth. And thank you for hitting us hard with it because we, we need to be jolted and we need to, we need to be disrupted if we're going to be able to listen to these things. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would apply them to our hearts and our lives. You know, I said in Jesus' name, amen.